Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, tomorrow is the first day of the Fed's two-day Federal Open Market Committee meeting, and it's going to be the first meeting where there is supposed to be a rate hike and a press conference for the new uh, chairman, Jerome Powell. And the markets are pretty much 100% probability that the Fed is going to raise rates on Wednesday. What the markets are grappling with is whether or not the Fed will raise rates four times this year or only three. Now, if they're going to raise them four times, it would mean they raise them once a quarter. So they raise them in March, they raise them in June, they raise them in September, and then they raise them again in December. Now, if they only do it three times, then they pick one of these quarters where they don't do it. Most likely, if they're only going to do three hikes, the hike they're going to skip is going to be the June hike. And of course, if they skip the June hike, they're probably not going to hike in September or December either uh, because the economy will be much weaker by then. The U.S. stock market could be much lower. The fact is, I'm still not 100% sure that the Fed is going to hike on Wednesday. Now, I would argue or agree that it's more likely than not that the Fed is going to hike because they've been hiking interest rates all along. Uh, The Fed so far has not really given any indication that they're not going to hike because they don't want to give up the ghost of this vibrant recovery. 
where they need to raise rates because everything is going so well. But that whole narrative, that whole illusion seems to be fading very quickly. As a matter of fact, on Friday, the Atlanta Fed's model for Q1 GDP went down another notch. They are now down to 1.8% for Q1 GDP. Now, does it sound like the Fed should be rushing to hike rates when GDP growth for the first quarter is only going to be 1.8%? I mean, does that sound like an economy that's in danger of overheating, right? When they were at 5.4% six weeks ago or so, and now they're down to one8 and falling. I mean, for all we know, we could end up being below one. Does the Fed really want to add more downward pressure to a decelerating economy by raising interest rates? Now, so far, everybody just assumes that they're going to hike breaks. But we'll see. You know, another factor that may weigh on the Fed's decision is the stock market. Now, we still have tomorrow, right, and Wednesday morning for the stock market to tank. Now, today, you know, the tanking process already began. In fact, at one point today, the Dow was almost down 500 points. At the low, it was down 490-something. The NASDAQ, the bigger decliner, was down almost 200 points intraday. Now, the markets recouped some of those losses. So the NASDAQ only closed down 137 points. And I say only, that's still a 1.84% drop. It's a big drop, not nearly as big as 200. The Dow was down 335. It's back in the red on the year. The Dow was down about 100 points so far this year. We're only about 800 Dow points above the closing low. From March, I think we're more like maybe 1,300 Dow points above the intraday low in the U.S. Uh, session. Uh, but who knows? I mean, the market could tank tomorrow. We'll see. And then is the Fed going to hike rates with the market tanking? If the Dow is back on the lows or challenging the lows, is the Fed going to follow through with this threat, which it really is? It's a threat, you know, to the markets. Is the Fed going to want to raise rates? with the economic data imploding and the stock market selling off or, you know, potentially, you know, collapsing. So that's a wild card. We'll see what happens because the Fed always wants to prop up the market. At least that has been the case in the past. And, you know, now that there's a Republican Trump appointee in charge, I mean, if Janet Yellen were still there and, you know, Trump hadn't appointed Powell yet, you could argue that, well, maybe Yellen wants the market to go down because she wants to see Trump fail. She wants to see the problems blamed on him. But I don't know that you can jump to that conclusion with Powell. After all, uh, President Trump handpicked Powell. He was his choice uh, to replace Yellen. So you would imagine there's going to be some loyalty there, that he's a team player. He knows the team he's playing on is betting it all on the stock market. Trump has certainly you know, taken credit for the rally and telling everybody to score his presidency based on the stock market. So if we get a bigger sell-off tomorrow on top of the one we have today, and if the market starts off weak on Wednesday, and you know, if the market believes the Fed's going to keep on raising rates, why would it stop falling? I mean, we know how overvalued the market is, and higher rates just increase the overvaluation. And if the economy is slowing down, remember, The whole rally in the stock market is predicated on this robust economic growth 
that's not materializing. And of course, if we don't get the robust economic growth, then the budget deficits are going to be much bigger than what people thought because everybody thought that we would pay for a good chunk of the tax cuts with all the extra economic growth that the tax cuts were going to produce. Well, if that extra economic growth doesn't actually materialize, then the deficits will be much bigger, which will be the case. And by the way, last week, I think it was on Thursday, the national debt topped $21 trillion. So that was quick. I mean, it was a very quick move from $20 trillion to $21 trillion. And I think the move from $21 trillion to $22 trillion is going to happen even quicker. In fact, I think we're going to break through that milestone in this calendar year, which will mean this will be the first time ever that we've gone through $2 trillion handles in the same calendar year, right? We'll go from $20 trillion to $22 trillion of debt in the same year. And of course, or unfortunately, that's a record that is going to be broken pretty quickly because I think before Trump is out of office, we'll go through three handles. Maybe next year we'll go from a $22 trillion to $25 trillion in a, a single year, especially if we end up in recession. I mean, if the economy is in recession by the end of this year, early next year, then absolutely I think that is going to happen with the deficit. So if the deficits are exploding, the trade deficits are exploding, the economy is weakening, the Fed is raising interest rates, why should an overvalued stock market keep going up? In fact, if you look at the technicals, the technicals for this market look very weak. In fact, as a matter of fact, today, we didn't even get any help from the bond market. There was no flight to quality, even though we had a near 500-point drop in the Dow, a near 200-point drop in the NASDAQ. The bond market never rallied. Now, it didn't sell off, but it didn't rally. And the fact that the yields did not come down, that bonds did not go up, we we didn't get that so-called flight to quality, not only is that a bad sign for the bond market, but it's a bad sign for the stock market. Because the only thing that saves the stock market from collapsing is the rally in the bond market. But if the bond market's not going to rally, what's going to stop the stock market from tanking? And if a tanking stock market won't prop up the bond market, then what will? What's going to stop the bond market from falling? And I don't believe anything. In fact, I think the bond market and the stock market are going to be falling together. And the trifecta is when you throw in the U.S. dollar, which had a very bad day today. The dollar index down 0.47, back below 90. We closed at 89.76, I believe. But the chart looks very, very weak. Remember, we got off to a horrible start in January. It was the worst decline for the dollar in in 30 years into January. Now, we took a little pause in February. Maybe the the currency markets didn't know what to make of the stock market crash. Uh, Was it bullish? Was it bearish? So I think, you know, the dollar kind of consolidated those big losses. And I think now it's ready for its next leg down. And, you know, that could be starting any minute. So you get a falling dollar, you get a falling bond market, you get a falling stock market. That is a trifecta of doom. And is the Fed going to, you know, add insult to injury? Are they going to raise rates? So far, everybody thinks they're going to. But at some point, the Fed is going to cry uncle. It's probably not going to be on Wednesday. Most likely, they will raise rates, but it's not 100% lock. But I think there's a good chance that if they raise rates on Wednesday, that that's the final rate hike of the year. We'll see. But I think if people are betting on three, then they can easily skip June. That's a freebie. 
And then why raise them in September? I mean, the elections are a month later. And I think, you know, the economy is in the tank by then. We're in a bear market by then. So it's hard to argue that if the Fed doesn't hike in in June, that it's going to hike again in September. We'll see if it even hikes in March. And again, you know, I talked on my podcast on Wednesday about the contrarian indicator of the Euro-Pacific capital clients capitulating and buying into the U.S. stock market. And, you know, I read that we had record influx of retail investors just last week or the week before into the NASDAQ, into NASDAQ-type stocks. This is probably the exact type of stuff that my clients uh, are, are buying into. And, of course, now we had a huge drop in, in that index after a bunch of retail investors, you know, like Lemmings, piled in. So I think that indicator is very, very strong that the markets have made a major top and they are about to really get clobbered. In fact, you know, I want to talk about this one conversation I had uh, on Friday with a woman who had an account with me, transferred it out on Friday, or is in the process of transferring out. I don't think it's left yet. But I had talked to her like a week earlier, a week or two earlier, and convinced her not to transfer her account. It's an IRA. It's a small account. It's in my RAP program. And it's only about $50,000, which is about what she started with. I mean, she, let's say she's about even on this account. It initially went down, then it came back up. Now, you know, she's about even. And um, she wanted to transfer. It's an IRA. And she was going to roll it over into an annuity. And I've mentioned this before about how improper it is when clients buy annuities in IRAs. But almost every time I get a client who wants to buy an annuity, inevitably, they're doing it in their IRA, which is the worst possible place to buy an annuity. Not that I would recommend buying annuities anyway right now, but the last place you should do it is in an IRA. So I was able to talk this woman out of doing that, you know, the last time she called me and indicated we got some paperwork she was going to transfer and I called her up and so she changed her mind. But then, you know, my office got a call from her other broker um, saying, no, no, she definitely wants to do it. She's changed her mind again. And, and, and so I, I actually gave this broker a call just to, you know, hear him out. And I got him on the phone and very rude guy, young guy. I don't know how long he's been in the business. I didn't ask him his age, but you can tell he's very young just by the sound of his voice. And, you know, this guy was like, you know, repeated the same lie that he had told her because she had told me that this is for free, right? There's no cost involved. Everybody who's buying an annuity thinks there's no cost when the commission on annuity is pretty much the highest commission any broker can charge on anything. I mean, typically they run about 8%. So if this woman is investing 50 grand, the broker is going to take four grand right off the top commission, put it right in his pocket. A huge incentive to get somebody to buy an annuity because there's nothing else that he could do where he would be paid anywhere near as much, right? That is the most return to broker. That's what you would call it, YTB, yield to broker. And the highest yield to broker in the industry by far is if you can convince your client to buy an annuity. Whether it's in their best interest or not, it's in the best interest of the broker. And of course, when you're buying an annuity in an IRA, it's clearly not in the best interest of the client because the main selling point of an annuity, and I can think of times where some types of annuities would be appropriate with estate planning and certain types of accounts, but the main benefit that you're paying for, and you're paying a lot for it because they ain't cheap, is the tax deferral right, of the, that you get with an annuity. Well, if you have an IRA, you've already got the tax deferral. Your gains in your IRA are tax deferred until you take the money out. That's the same thing as an annuity. 
So if you have an IRA, the last thing you need to do in your IRA is to buy some kind of tax shelter. So the only reason that reps, brokers are telling people to buy annuities in IRAs is because the money they make. And so I talked to this rep and he tried to tell me on the line, he said, there's no commission. I said, what do you mean there's no commission? He goes, oh, you're talking about the surrender charge? I go, yeah, the surrender charge. He said, well, that's not a commission. Of course it is. What the surrender charge is, is how much you have to pay if you want to get out of your annuity before the 10-year maturity. And that's the commission because they don't show you the commission on the way in. They just stick it to you on the way out. Now, of course, what they tell you is, well, if you just stay in there for 10 years, well, then you won't have to pay the commission. Yeah, but you got to leave your money there for 10 years. And that's a long time. A lot can happen in 10 years. There's something called the present value of money. How much inflation do you think? If you put in $50,000 today and in 10 years you get your $50,000 back, how much value do you think you're going to lose in the next 10 years to a rising cost of living? I mean, you're going to lose a tremendous amount of money. You're going to lose a lot more than the 8% commission that you actually paid off the top. So the only way they'll let you off the hook is if you leave the money there and don't take it back for 10 years. So the whole thing is a con, yet so many people fall to it because they think they're getting something for nothing. They think the salesman is giving them a product for zero commission. I mean, nobody is selling something where there's no commission. And believe me, 8% isn't the totality of the fee. There are annual fees in these things too. So it's not like you just pay 8% and then that's it. Now, the other gimmick that that's there is that you can't lose money, right? And I talked to my client and her main reason for doing this is not because she's not paying any commission, which she still thinks she's getting it for free, even though I explained it to her, is because she says, well, you know, I don't want any risk, right? I had this account. I saw it go down. It's come back up. And, you know, I don't want to have the risk of it going back down again. And if I buy this annuity, then I know that I have no risk because I'll get my money back in 10 years no matter what happens. And I try to explain to her that that is not no risk, that having your money back in 10 years is not the same thing as having your money today, especially with the loss of purchasing power that I envision. And the other thing that's exciting her about it is that this annuity is fixed or variable tied to the return on the S&P 500. You know, so she's buying into the U.S. stock market at the top. But of course, she doesn't get all of the returns on the S&P. You can't. You get some of the return because you can't have all the upside and none of the downside. That's impossible. So they create a structure where you get some of the upside in exchange for none of the downside so long as you wait 10 years for your money back. And of course, obviously, if they take 8% off the top out of your money, then you have, you know, you have 8% less money that can participate in the upside. So there's all these fees. There are all these gimmicks. In fact, if if a client wants to, I can create a strategy like this without using an annuity, do the exact same thing directly that the, that the annuity does indirectly and do it a lot cheaper. In fact, I even tell clients usually that if they want to buy one of these annuities, they don't have to transfer their account. I can buy an annuity. I mean, there's nothing that stops me from buying a client an annuity in their IRA other than my own integrity. But if the client wants to do it anyway, you know, if, you know, if they're going to slit their own throats, I mean, sure, yeah, I could, I, I could give them a knife just like their other broker. They don't have to transfer out. So if any of you are thinking about doing something that dumb, if you want to buy an annuity, especially one tied to the S&P 500 in your IRA, you don't have to transfer your account to some other broker. You know, I'll do it. You know, hell, you know, I mean, you might as well pay me the commission. I'll try to talk you out of it. I mean, I'll try to do the right thing, just like I try to do the right thing 
for this woman. But sometimes, you know, you can't because I think a lot of it, too, is she still thinks the U.S. stock market is going to go up. But she thinks she's got a freebie. She thinks she can get a chance at all the gains in the stock market. But worst case scenario, she can't lose. And the worst case scenario, she's going to lose a lot, even if she gets her money back. Now, of course, with all these annuities, there is a chance that the insurance company that has written the annuity can go bankrupt, right? Because the guarantee is only as good as the insurance company that's written the policy. So you only get your money back if the insurance company is still in business. And, you know, there's no guarantee. I mean, I would concede the probability is that the insurance company will still be in business. And if they go out of business, maybe there'll be some government bailout. And so you still get your money back through some government program. But if the insurance company goes bankrupt and the government has to bail them out with a massive QE program, what do you think your money is going to be worth? What's your $50,000 going to be worth 10 years from now? You'll be lucky if it's still worth $25,000 as far as purchasing power. Maybe it's only worth $10,000. I mean, if you lose 80% of your purchasing power over the next 10 years, which is certainly a possibility, you know, it's not like you haven't lost anything. At the same time, what really bothers me about what's going to happen to this client is not that they're going to lose all this purchasing power. She's getting out of my wrap account. She's getting out of those funds. I mean, can you imagine what those funds could be worth 10 years from now if we have the type of inflation that I anticipate, the type of dollar weakness, the type of growth in commodities and emerging markets and gold stocks? I mean, who knows how much higher her account could be? So not only is she going to lose purchasing power by buying an overpriced annuity, uh, pegged to the dollar in the S&P 500, but she's getting out of a strategy that I think would uh, deliver uh, enormous returns over that time period. But again, I look at all this as a great contrarian indicator that the market has topped out. In fact, look, look at what happened today with gold. Gold was only up about four bucks today. I mean, NASDAQ down almost 200 points. We couldn't even get a rally in gold and the dollar went down. The dollar was down, you know, pretty nicely today. Gold was actually up 2% on the year, though, which is better than the Dow. The Dow is down a little bit on the year, so gold is up a couple of percent. But the main reason, I think, that traders are not buying gold is because they expect the Fed to raise rates. Well, so what? I mean, the Fed has raised rates, what, four or five times now, and the price of gold is much higher. In fact, I believe if the Fed uh, raises rates on Wednesday, the price of gold is going to go up. If not Wednesday, then Thursday, probably even the same day. Why? Because whenever the Fed raises rates, the market goes up. It's buy the rumor, sell the fact. The markets are convinced the Fed's going to raise rates, and they're convinced that raising rates is bad for gold. Well, they're wrong about that. It's not bad for gold. Now, the day that they don't raise rates, it will be super bullish for gold, but I think it's bullish for gold either way, because every time they raise rates, they're one step closer to the final hike when they can start cutting, and higher rates is not bad for gold because they're not raising them fast enough. Real rates are not rising, and these higher rates feed through the economy into consumer prices. They make inflation higher, if you're going to measure it by consumer prices. Rising inflation is bullish for gold. Now, of course, when the Fed starts to cut rates again and prints a bunch of money, I think the dollar is going to tank for that reason, too. So I think the dollar, dollar is going down and gold is going up regardless. In fact, the dollar went down today and gold still didn't care, right, because the idea is, the reason that rate hikes are supposed to be bearish for gold is because they're bullish for the dollar. Well, the dollar's not rising in anticipation of these rate hikes. So if the dollar's not rising, what is the bearish case for gold if your bearish case for gold is based on a strong dollar? In fact, you know, one of the reasons now that people might think the dollar's going to be strong is because of Larry Kudlow, right, who's going to be the chief economic advisor. In fact, 
his first words of advice, not necessarily to the public, but to everybody. This was last week when he was interviewed on CNBC. He said that he thinks people should buy the dollar and sell gold. And gold actually sold off on those nonsense comments. Uh, The dollar rallied a bit, but I think it's now lower than it was when he made those comments, as if Larry Kudlow has any influence at all in the administration on the value of the dollar. I mean, he talks about King Dollar, but nothing that he wants to do is going to be bullish for the dollar. I mean, just willing it higher, just because you have uh, a strong dollar policy now by Kudlow saying that a strong dollar is in the national interest, I mean, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, Kudlow is in favor of more tax cuts, so he's in favor of bigger deficits, right? He's now in favor of, you know, punitive uh, retaliatory tax uh, tariffs on, on China. And believe me, he's going to be in favor of Trump's entire protectionist agenda. None of this stuff is bullish for the dollar. And believe me, when the economy turns down, Kudlow is going to be pounding the table for the Fed to cut rates. I remember the last time he was asking for shock and awe. You know, first he was saying everything was great, right? Even as late, I've seen clips as late as mid-2008. Larry Kudlow is saying there is no recession. All those people saying recession are wrong. Bush economy is stronger than ever. He's going to go down to history as one of the greatest presidents for the economy. You're talking mid-2008. We're already in recession. And he's talking about how great the economy is, how the Bush boom is intact, right? But after it completely fell apart, after we got the financial crisis, he was actually calling for shock and awe monetary policy. He wanted the Fed to do more, to print more money, right, to prop things up. So that's exactly what he's going to be advocating uh, as, you know, in an official capacity. The same thing he was saying, you know, when he was at CNBC, he's going to be saying the same thing. All of that is negative for the dollar. So in, in theory, Kudlow can talk about a strong dollar. I, I agree with Kudlow that a strong dollar is good and we want a strong dollar, but we ain't going to get one. It's like when I wrote my book, uh, Crash Proof, I, ta- I wrote about uh, the straight A policy, that you can have a son or kid and he has a straight A policy, which is good, right? That's a good policy. You want to have straight A's, right? But you're not going to get straight A's just by making it your policy, right? I said that if you cut class and you're always smoking dope and you don't do your homework, right? You ain't going to get straight A's. It doesn't matter what your policy is, right? You're not doing what you need to do. Your study habits are not going to get you the A's. And that's what our strong dollar policy is. We can talk about how a strong dollar would be great, right? Just like straight A's is great. But if we're not doing anything necessary to have a strong dollar, what would we need to do? Shrink government, cut government spending, right? Really cut government spending, deregulate, right? Balance the budget, generate a surplus, right? Maybe reform our tax structure, abolish the income tax. There are a lot of things that we could do to make the economy legitimately stronger that would warrant a dollar that would be appreciating relative to the currencies of our trading partner. But we're not doing any of that stuff. We're just jacking up the deficits, you know, spewing out more and more red ink. That is negative for the dollar. And all of that dollar negative activity is going to continue. But that might be part of it. It's the Kudlow effect and the Fed's about the hike rates. And that's, you know, kind of got a damper on the price of gold. But all that's going to change. The only question is when? Is it going to change on Wednesday? Well, if the Fed doesn't hike rates on Wednesday, yes, right? I think that would be a major event if the Fed shocks the markets with no rate hike on Wednesday. Now we'll see what they say in their press conference if they do raise rates, but they dramatically reduce expectations for future rate hikes. But if they don't, if they let the markets believe that we're going to have four rate hikes this year, then I don't think gold gets killed on that because I think 
you know, I think gold could even rally a bit on that. But I think the market gets killed on that. Right. I think, you know, this, you know, there's no question about that. I mean, the stock market is already weak and that would, you know, simply make it weaker. But even if the, the gold market sells off a little bit on that, I don't think the sell off will last. I believe the buyers will step in just as they have been stepping in ever since the Fed initially raised rates. Remember, the first rate hike, gold went down to one thousand and fifty. You know, where is it today? It's above thirteen hundred. So the people who have been buying the dips in gold each time the Fed hikes rates, that's been a winning trade. Now, could it have been an even more winning trade? Sure. The price of gold should be much higher. Now, gold stocks, that's a different story. You know, gold stocks are actually down about 8% this year. Even though the price of gold is up 2%, gold stocks are down 8%. Why? Why are gold stocks doing so weak when the price of gold is rising? And again, it all has to do with sentiment. It all has to do with the idea that everybody believes the price of gold is going to collapse, even though it hasn't, even though it's rising. And because they believe the price of gold is going to collapse, they're selling gold mining stocks in anticipation of that collapse, which is not going to happen. And at some point, of course, people are going to have to acknowledge that it's not going to happen. And then that's when you're going to see some massive buying in gold. Hey, you know, I wanted to also talk a little bit about, uh, you know, steel and aluminum because we talked about the president's uh, uh, tariffs. And I mentioned how that might impact, let's say, manufacturers of appliances that were making refrigerators or washer dryers. And, you know, I had forgotten that a while earlier, Trump had actually imposed tariffs on uh, foreign washing machines. So to, to that extent, uh, the appliance makers had some protection for that particular appliance, but not, you know, not for refrigerators. But I read an article about the last manufacturer of uh, beer kegs. In America, they you know make them out of steel, and there's one left apparently. All the rest of the kegs are imported. And I read the article, and it basically said this: that these tariffs are probably the end. This is the final nail. This is probably going to force them out of business because you know they buy their steel right now from American companies, right? So they're not buying imported steel. They're using domestically made steel now, but they're convinced that because of these tariffs, and they're correct, the price of domestic steel is going to go up. And because it's going to go up, it's going to be harder for them to compete with imported uh, beer kegs that are going to be using less expensive steel bought on the international market. So ultimately, the company gets driven out of business. And now when the tariffs are eventually removed, and they will be, well, now that's one less customer to buy American steel because for the few years the tariffs may have been in place for a few months, who knows, that was long enough to drive this user of American steel out of business. And now what happens to all the people who used to manufacture those steel kits? Well, they all they lose their jobs. They're, they're collateral damage in this ridiculous trade war. And now our trade deficit goes up because now we buy imported kegs that we used to make ourselves. Right. So at, that's what I said initially. This whole thing is going to backfire. These protectionist tariffs are going to end up exacerbating already growing trade deficits, so they are going to backfire, which is what they always do. Let me finally uh, finish this up, talk a little bit about the cryptocurrencies. They had a hell of a weekend. I mean, these things were getting destroyed up until maybe Sunday morning. And then there was a recovery. I think maybe there were people that were worried about the G20 meeting and issuing some uh, you know, new regulations, and that didn't happen, and maybe that, that sparked a rally. But Bitcoin... I think got all the way down to about 7,300 um, Sunday morning. 
I uh, remember, and it, you know, just last week it was, you know, above 10,000 or I think so, or well above nine, but Bitcoin wasn't the main casualty. Bitcoin was actually increasing its market dominance of the crypto space, you know, as a percentage of total market cap. It got all the way back up to about 45, 46%. I think it was the other currencies, the alt currencies that were getting completely obliterated. Now they've had some big rallies too since, uh, since then, like this one um, EOS, which has been a very popular, is up about 30% today. It's at 570. This thing was trading at like 370 on Sunday. And it was up at 19 bucks. You know, when Bitcoin got to almost 2000, this thing got to $19. It had a run from 50 cents to $19 in a few months. Now it's down, then it dropped 80%. Now, I mean, obviously, if something is down 80%, it's not in a bull market anymore. I don't care that it went from 50 cents to $19. That bull market is over when you go from $19 to $3.70, right? We are in a bear market in that currency and a lot of other currencies. And yeah, obviously, if people bought these things low enough, if you bought it at 50 cents, you still have a pretty good gain at $5.70. But what if you paid $15? You know, you're way down. And, and who knows how low these things are going to go. And by the way, you know, I read this other article that I put on my Facebook page about the potential tax consequences. A lot of people are going to end up with some nightmare scenarios reminiscent of what happened during the dot-coms with their taxes. And I'll explain this to you because there are plenty of people who bought Bitcoin and made a lot of money when it ran up. And then they, they used their Bitcoins to buy other currencies, whether it was Ether or maybe they bought some of the EOS I just mentioned, but they bought a bunch of other ones, right? And a lot of people probably thought, well, you know, I'm not going to declare this as a capital gain because, you know, I'm just moving money from one cryptocurrency to another cryptocurrency so it's still in the same space. And maybe they thought, you know, I mean, I don't really owe any taxes. Or maybe they thought they owed the taxes, but they didn't think anybody would know. Right. Well, here's the deal. Anybody who took Bitcoin and used it to buy any other cryptocurrency, the minute they did that, they had a taxable event on the, the sale of Bitcoin. It doesn't matter if they didn't take any of the money. If they used 100% of the sales proceeds to buy some other cryptocurrency, that doesn't matter. As far as the IRS is concerned, the minute you sold one cryptocurrency to buy another one, you locked in a gain. Now, let's say somebody did that last year, right? They took profits in Bitcoin. They diversified into a portfolio of other cryptocurrencies. And let's say, I don't know, next year or the year after that, let's say these things completely crash, right? So let's say somebody turned $1,000 into $100,000 in uh, Bitcoin or $101,000, right? They made a hundred grand profit. They owe, you know, they could owe $20,000, $24,000 capital gains tax on that transaction. But let's say they take the whole $100,000 and they put it into other cryptocurrencies and they crash. And let's say they sell out of everything and they end up with ten grand, right? That's still 10 times what they started with. They put 1000 in. They got 10,000 out, they're done, right? But they went up to 100 grand, they rolled it back down to 10,000. Here's their tax problem. When the IRS catches up to them, they're going to say, okay, well, you owe us $20,000 in capital gains on that first, you know, 100 grand that you made. And now the guy's like, well, I don't have it. I lost it. I only got 10,000 left. The IRS's attitude is tough. We don't care about that. We want our $20,000. Oh, and by the way, you owed us that money three years ago. So there's late penalties and interest. You owe us $40,000 now. Well, I mean, so people are going to end up losing a fortune, even though they might have made money 
trading cryptocurrencies. They're going to end up losing money because of the taxes, the interest, and the penalties on the taxes that they did not pay. Because you can't write off those losses. You can only write off losses against gains that you take in the same year. So if you make $100,000 trading cryptocurrencies in 2015, and then you lose $90,000 in 2016, you can't write off that $90,000 loss against your $100,000 gain. You got to wait and carry that forward. You can take it forward against future gains, but you can't take it backwards. So a lot of people don't get this, and they are going to end up getting clobbered by the IRS when the IRS finds them. And of course, what's going to happen when you have a lot of people who have cryptocurrencies that end up with huge tax bills to the IRS? I mean, the only way they're going to even attempt to pay them is by liquidating their only asset, which is their cryptocurrencies, right? If you're just holding these cryptocurrencies and you haven't taken any money off the table, you simply moved your crypto portfolio from Bitcoin to some other altcoins. So now that you have a portfolio, but you did that with profits on your Bitcoin that you never reported and that you never paid taxes on, all of a sudden you find out from the IRS you owe a lot of money and the only asset you have to satisfy that tax liability are your cryptocurrencies, well, then you got to sell them. And so you're going to have a lot of people selling cryptocurrencies to pay Uncle Sam, which means what? Which means the prices go down even more. So this is just another horror story that's going to be a byproduct of this this whole bubble, this whole mania. Well, that's it for now. Wednesday's podcast will probably be very, very interesting because I am going to be able to comment on the press conference uh, following the decision to hike or not to hike. And if they're going to hike, what kind of indication they give as to how many are going to follow this calendar year. And we'll see what kind of reaction we immediately get in the markets. And then we'll get some kind of a counter move. Oftentimes the markets have a quick knee-jerk reaction and then they have a counter move in the other direction. So I'll be able to talk about that uh, later on on Wednesday.